trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here to engage in some wrong think with me today. We have a number of sponsors who make this program possible. I hope you'll listen closely to who they are. And if you have the opportunity, maybe do some business with them or at the very least drop a note to them and tell them thank you for sponsoring this program. They include Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, also Monticello College, Pure Light, and HSL Ammo. You can find them at the show in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where I put lots and lots of good reading material and, and different interesting articles that you may wish to explore. So where to begin today? So uh, the mask mandates are off in at least 16 different states. This is really good news. Unfortunately, uh, my governor of my state, uh, Spencer Cox, uh, decided to play it safe. And I don't know. I, you know, I'm trying to feel a little bit of empathy for the guy. I'm not a fan of, of Spencer Cox. I, I, I see him as part of the establishment. He's part of the machinery, in my opinion. So it, it wasn't terribly surprising that he says, well, you know, we're going to play it safe and make sure that, you know, we're about not being premature with these mask mandates. But can I just tell you from, from my experience on, uh, you know, work, either working part-time in retail or just talking to people out and about, it sure seems like a lot of people are over this and ready to move on. And I think that's probably a good thing. I think that's healthy. Nobody's pretending, well, there's no such thing as COVID anymore. You know, we're all safe. Let's come on, French kisses for everybody that we meet instead of handshakes. No, nope, that's not the case. It's just a recognition that to all the lockdown stuff, all the, the shuttering of businesses and the mandates and the harassment and enforcement, and, and they weren't even laws. And yet it did nothing whatsoever to slow the spread of the virus. And, and I know there are those who say, well, what would, you, what would you have them do, Brian? Would you have them do nothing? Well, I wouldn't say necessarily doing nothing, but, I mean, at the very least, they could have uh, just made the recommendations, much like Sweden did with its population. Keep the people who are most at risk informed and let everybody else weigh their own risks as to, well, what, what are you going to do? See, it's, it's interesting to me how this has parlayed into this uh, this power play by authorities at every level of government. And I'm talking not just in America, but but across the world. Some have taken it very seriously and used it as a chance to just absolutely consolidate control over the citizenry. Others have taken a more light-handed approach. I think of Governor Christy Noam in South, South Dakota. And yet there are still those who say, well, you know, even if you've had the, uh, the vaccination, you still should mask up and you still shouldn't be close to anybody. And, you know, there's still the... the LED signs on the freeway that are, are out there to, now don't forget, no gatherings and don't forget to mask up. And I don't know. Somebody still wants us to be scared. And for some people, it may be very scary, but let's, let's stop playing to the fear of the masses. And one of the big places where I see this right now is this push for a so-called health passport. 
Now, presumably, this is going to be, you know, your documentation of what you did and and how you, uh, I guess, essentially how you are vaccinated. You are in compliance. But, man, I am not happy with that idea. I am not good with the idea that uh, you're going to need this internal passport that uh, relates to your health in order to, to be a productive member of society. It's very troubling. And it raises the question, what, what can you do about it, or what should you do about it? Well, I came across an article, this, is, this was in my inbox yesterday, and it's uh, from Jenin Yunus from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled, Your Right to Refuse a Health Passport. And this is what uh, Jenin Yunus has to say. She says, at a press conference this afternoon, this was a couple of days ago, obviously, uh, New York's now-disgraced Governor Andrew Cuomo provided details of the health passport program he'd announced a day prior. And she says the scheme should send, send chills down the spine of anyone who believes in the importance of civil liberties and the integrity of the individual. In order to attend events of a certain size, attendees will have to demonstrate either that they have been vaccinated or tested negative for COVID-19 within the past 72 hours. Now, incidentally... She says, uh, the only way to provide such evidence would be to download what's called the Excelsior Pass, developed in partnership with IBM. In an irony that would be hilarious were it not so disturbing, the governor's website promises robust privacy protections woven through the digital health pass solution. She says, a cynic might also note that once again, a big tech company is benefiting from illiberal policies enacted in response to the pandemic. Jen and Yuna says the authoritarian nature of this program should not be underestimated. Anyone who enjoys attending or plans to attend a large event is now under enormous pressure to get vaccinated. Now, she says, I'm by no means anti-vaccine as a general matter. And I believe the COVID-19 vaccines can provide a substantial benefit to many people, especially vulnerable populations. But she also points out there are real risks to receiving it, especially given the new nature of the technology employed by the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines and the fact that they've received emergency use authorizations rather than full market approval. As evolutionary biologists Heather Hying and Brent Weinstein have explained, public health authorities tend to downplay the dangers of immunizations in order to convince more people to get them. It's a version of game theory in order to achieve herd immunity through inoculation. So she says it is therefore not unreasonable for healthy, relatively young people to whom the virus poses a negligible threat to to conduct a cost-benefit analysis and decide to forego vaccination in favor of potential natural immunity. Nor is it irrational for vulnerable individuals to make the same choice. Vaccination is, or should be, a personal decision based upon one's assessment of the risks and benefits to oneself and others. So by tying the ability to attend certain events to immunization status, Governor Cuomo is effectively using the coercive power of the state to influence people's choices about their bodies and their health and the degree to which they're willing to take on a risk for the benefit of other people. That one can provide proof of a negative COVID-19 PCR test as an alternative doesn't make this policy any less troubling. She says, while these tests do not carry the health risks that vaccinations do, they raise other concerns. A positive result entails a forced 10- or 14-day quarantine, which constitutes an inconvenience to nearly everyone, 
and a grave difficulty for many, including those whose paycheck relies upon physical presence in the workplace. Once again, class is implicated as white-collar professionals who work on Zoom can afford to order fresh, direct, and seamless, and they can withstand a quarantine period in relative comfort. Notably, it's essential workers, often members of the working class, who are most likely to have acquired natural immunity through previous infection. But they're not permitted to utilize that to their advantage under the governor's scheme. So in essence, one either has to get vaccinated or risk being forced into quarantine to attend a large event. Now, the policies of the sort on which the governor is so keen, namely those that allow him to exercise power over the population, will undoubtedly further deplete trust in public health. For decades, there's been a consensus that effective health policy relies upon trust between the public and authorities. When the people feel rightly stripped of their bodily integrity and the freedom to make their own decisions about their health, and that they're being treated as chattel to effectuate some grander plan, there's a breakdown in this relationship. So she says Cuomo's new policy should come as no surprise given the events of the past year, during which governments across the globe have violated human rights en masse in a mostly failed quest to control the virus. Jenna Yunus says this unprecedented use of state power to coerce New Yorkers to receive a vaccine is simply the next chapter in our dystopian nightmare. The framers of our Constitution knew that those in power inevitably abuse it, which is why they provided for separation of powers through the three branches of government. She says Governor Cuomo has had too much control for too long. He's obviously enjoyed wielding it since day one. And she notes, as I have said again and again, Until we make it clear we will not abide by these infringements on our civil rights, our liberty, and our dignity, then they they will not stop. Unfortunately, she says, New Yorkers have proven themselves too willing to comply. I assume that even if you live outside of New York, this probably has some meaning to you. I mean, I'm happy to see that there, there are places where the mask mandates are coming off. I'm very happy to see that, you know, for the most part, that means that things are going to go back to somewhat normal for a lot of people. But you have a few stubborn holdouts. Costco and Target are still like, nope, we're going to require masks. I've got an idea I'm going to share with you coming up in the next segment that uh, I'm very seriously considering exploring. But I'm going to make you wait for it. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So in the last segment, I was sharing with you an article from Jenin Yunus from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is one of my go-to sources. They have numerous, very, very skilled and, uh, and I think very principled writers. And I get, a, I get a fresh email in my inbox every day from them with about a half dozen or more different articles. And as far as, as, far as coverage of all of the different COVID fallout, and I'm talking like real serious measurement, crunching the numbers, looking at exactly what has happened due to all the various lockdown policies, AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research, has really led out 
So if if you are if you're serious about staying on top of this issue and having a very uh, well thought out principled take on it, I'd strongly recommend consider signing up for their emails. It's not going to cost you anything, and it will bring a wealth of information right to your inbox every single day. And there is a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com to a Jen and Eunice article. So I mentioned there's there's something in regards to masks that uh, I kind of want to, to put to the test here. And it's, it's a little lanyard. You hang around your neck with a little card there. And it has the medical symbol, right? The snake on the stick, the, the, the little medical symbol there. And it just says, face mask, medical exemption. Someone on lourockwell.com, Brian Mellis, says that uh, he, he wears this to, to every store that he goes to. So instead of getting into fisticuffs or heated discussions with well-meaning but paycheck-dependent store employees, he says, my face mask medical exemption card simply says it all. And I see where he's going with this. And I actually, I like the idea. You just wear it around your neck. And when someone says, hey, uh, do you, where's your mask? You just simply hold up the card, face mask, medical exemption. Now, in his case, he says, I'm fortunate as to have several friends who are doctors who fully agree with this and have actually given me a note to tuck inside his uh, face mask, you know, uh, his lanyard. But he says it's not required. And nobody has a right to see that note unless a subpoena is issued. So I'm seriously considering this. This may be something I'm going to have to put together. Um, not, I, I, I don't want to sound like a cop-out, but I just simply avoid places like Target and Costco that, that are really strict on mask compliance. But this is a nice out for some of those different, uh, you know, employees. You know, the, the diehard, fully programmed maskers are going to sometimes uh, uh, react negatively. He says it's kind of like a vampire, you know, being shown a silver cross. What's that card say? Face mask medical exemption. <laughs> don't don't show that to me. I don't know. You could probably sprinkle them with holy water if you wanted to. I don't know. But I like the idea of actually having something like this. It's kind of like flashing your credentials, right? The FBI agent passing through the security checkpoint. Let me flash my badge at you. Here's my badge. It says face mask, medical exemption. Or you could just take the approach that a lot of people are doing and just simply go about your business. Don't make eye contact. Don't talk. Just go do your business and, and move along. I guess a lot of that's going to depend on you know how determined they are to make sure you, uh, you know what the policy is. Gosh, I hate how this has, has put this artificial divide between us to where we have to start thinking, what are the measures? What are the countermeasures? If this is a game of chess, it's not a very fun one. <laughs> I'm not enjoying it at all. All right, moving on. This is a, an article from John Stossel. And I find that uh, what John Stossel has to say is usually well worth considering. He is, again, one of the very few individuals out there who uh, wears the moniker of a journalist and I think deserves to. Most of uh, what passes as journalists these days are really just stenographers for whoever happens to be in power or whoever would like to be in power, for that matter. They, they don't really give you facts. They just kind of give you, here's what you're supposed to believe. Shut up and believe it. Okay. John Stossel doesn't do that. And when you consider that some of the greatest damage, and I'm talking economically and psychologically, that's been done over this past year has been related to the fallout over authorities deeming some workers essential and others non-essential, John Stossel has a really great take on this. And the title of his piece here is Every Worker is an Essential Worker. And he wastes no time getting right to the point. He says politicians have too much power over our lives. 
Many used the pandemic as another excuse to take more. Early on, he says, politicians declared that they would decide who was essential. Everyone else was told to stay home. And much of the economy stopped. Millions were laid off. And then politicians relaxed the rules for industries that they deemed essential. Now, Mike Rowe, host of the TV series Dirty Jobs, said, you can't just call somebody essential without implicitly suggesting that half the workforce is not essential. And Rowe says that's a big problem because people find purpose in work. Now, the Biden administration is eager to give money to people not working. It's pushing a new stimulus package that would pay the unemployed an additional $400 a week. And John Stossel says since states like mine tack on as much as $500 a week in unemployment benefits, many people learn that the $900 a week leaves them with more money if they don't go back to work. So many don't. But he says staying home imposes costs too. Calls to suicide hotlines are up, domestic violence is up, and Mike Rowe says that's happening because people simply don't feel valued. Politicians claim they save lives when they order businesses to close. When Governor Andrew Cuomo announced a lockdown, he said, if everything we do saves just one life, (laughs) presumably outside of a nursing home, I'll be happy. Rowe mocks that in John Stossel's new video this week. Mike Rowe says, well, let's knock the speed limit down to 10 miles an hour. Make cars out of rubber. Make everybody wear a helmet. Cars are a lot safer in the driveway. Ships are a lot safer when they don't leave harbor. And people are safer when they sit quietly in their basements. But that's not why cars, ships, and people are on the planet. Stossel says, Micro points out that working and accomplishing things are a big part of what makes life worth living. In fact, he runs a foundation that gives scholarships to people to help them learn trades like construction. Now, of course, construction is dangerous. Some people get killed. Cuomo, should we stop building things? Roe likes the phrase safety third as a response to people who constantly preach safety first. Mike Rowe says, the ones who really get it, they're not out there talking about safety first. They know that other things come first. He says, every time I've hurt myself, it's always been in that fraction of a moment where I take my eye off the ball and I start to think that maybe some, somebody somewhere cares more about my well-being than me. Rose says COVID-19 challenges us to figure out how to live in a dangerous world. But guess what? That's always been the case. And he cites C.S. Lewis's On Living in an Atomic Age, in which Lewis asks, how are we supposed to live in a world with atomic weapons when everything could be over just like that? Lewis answered, the same way we lived in a world where Vikings could land on the shore a thousand years ago and raid villages. There's more to life than worrying about our death, writes Lewis. We must resolutely train ourselves to feel that the survival of man on this earth is not worth having unless it can be had by honorable and merciful means. COVID-19 is just different, says Roe. We'd be well advised to understand what the risks are, and then we'd be better advised to go about the business of living the only life we have. I think about the story that I shared with you the other day from Donald Boudreaux, the story of Vicky. And if you haven't heard it, this was, uh, I think, two days ago, so this would have been March 3rd. And I can't remember if it was first or second hour of the show. Sorry, it all kind of blends together when you talk as much as I do. But it was the story of a woman who had uh, had a boyfriend killed in a horrible car accident. Another friend horribly crippled in that same accident. And she became so obsessed with trying to protect against uh, the dangers of automobiles that even her current boyfriend, she wouldn't let him so much as ride the bus to come and visit her. 
And she kept putting these conditions on it because the most important thing in the world was to avoid dying in an automobile accident or dying at the hands of an automobile driver. So much so that she forgets what really matters in life. And I fear that for some people, that's, that's the threshold that we have crossed. We are so obsessed with avoiding COVID and not dying of COVID that we're willing to give up everything else that's good in our lives in exchange for that, that fleeting sense of security. Look, I'm not telling you to be reckless. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that life is about more than simply avoiding a disease or avoiding harm or avoiding death. Embrace the risks. Minimize them as you can, but get out there and live. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If this is your first foray into wrong thinking, I hope that you're finding it, uh, well, I was going to say acceptable, but I want something better than that. I hope you're finding it inspiring, <laughs> because that's the reason why I and uh, many other people like me do what I do. It's because I want to inspire people to embrace the things that really are best in life, and I'm talking about things like your personal freedom. I want them to embrace things like their, their conscience, and their ability to think and act and, and behave autonomously. To go out there and let the free market to do its magic, to contribute as they can to solving the world's problems, to protecting the rights of, of everyone, whether it be private property rights or whether it be their personal, natural, God-given rights. That's the reason I do what I do. And unfortunately, if you haven't noticed, I'm guessing you probably have, and that's why you're listening. If you haven't noticed, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are uh, pushing, trying to obtain control and, and compulsion and coercion over as many folks as possible. Wrong thinkers understand that, look, we're responsible for ourselves. We're responsible for our own worldview. That's why we question the narrative. That's why we sometimes buck the narrative, if that's what's required. But it's all done out of a, a respect for and a love for personal liberty, freedom of conscience. And that means respecting other people's freedom of liberty and conscience. Look, if, if there's a dividing line that you need, and, and some people thrive on, well, how can we divide people up into these readily identifiable groups? Here's, here's the only divide to me that really matters, and that's decent and indecent. Decent people do not try to coerce the people around them whether it be through guilt, whether it be through some other form of manipulation, or whether it's just, you know, the naked use of the state and its force to make people do what we want them to do. Indecent people are the ones who do that. And my plea with you is to be able to recognize that difference. Root out the indecency in your own heart, and trust me, it's in every one of our hearts. And be a decent person. If you want to shape the world, if you want to move people around you, move them by persuasion. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it's something that has to be done by coercion, that to me is the mark of an indecent person or an indecent idea or an indecent movement. If you've got to force people to do it, it may not be that great of an idea to start with. 
All right, I got to hop off the soapbox here. This this tends to get me a little bit wound up. Look, I've been a longtime advocate for personal preparedness, way back before it was cool. Okay, there's a lot of people who can say that, but I, I remember distinctly, I got very serious about personal preparedness uh, right about the time that my, my oldest daughter, Mason, was born. And I think it was, you know, not only the, the recognition of, oh, wow, you know, we've got, we have this new life that's come into our home, and my wife and I are responsible for raising her, and any subsequent kids arrive, which five more of them did, but I just felt this intense personal responsibility here we have this new little baby girl, and, and my, my sense was, I've got to make sure that I'm doing what I can to provide, including being ready for unexpected emergencies or, or circumstances that we hadn't uh, uh, you know, anticipated for we have to do for ourselves. So when I saw this article by Kent McManigal, I thought, yeah, I've been beating this drum for a long time. And I know, if you're a longtime listener of mine, you're like, oh boy, here he goes again. Kind of. But in this case, I'm going to ask you, listen to Kent McManigal. This is a different voice carrying much the same message. I think he actually says it better than I do. But Kent McManigal says it is time to start getting prepared for emergencies. He says, I thought the past year had taught people to be prepared and less dependent on rescue by others. But he says, it seems I was wrong. This has been quite the year for preppers. Just one crisis after another with the recent cold snap and power outages, the latest chapter. Now, he says, if you're still not a prepper, you have no one to blame but yourself when you get caught off guard by the next event. You've had plenty of warning. You've seen that politicians aren't able to save you, even if they wanted to. But here's the kicker, and this is, this is something I wish I'd been better at, at communicating. Kent McManigal says, if I seem to harp on this topic, it's because I care about your safety and comfort. During the recent cold spell, he says, I heard personal stories from people who huddled in their cars for hours trying to stay warm, of school buses being distributed and parked in neighborhoods as emergency shelters from the cold, of burst pipes and house fires. People died from carbon monoxide poisoning because they didn't understand how to safely stay warm when the grid is down. And he says, we were lucky in this area this time. People have an individual responsibility to be prepared for storms, record cold and heat, and power outages. But he says it's not all their fault, though. They've been lulled into a false sense of security. There's another lesson, he says, that seems obvious to me. It's a terrible idea to allow government to grant utility monopolies, decide energy policy, and otherwise interfere in the energy market. When this happens, you get blackouts at the worst possible times. So instead of government dictating how energy will be produced and distributed, there should be a market providing it. If government gets involved, there is no market. There's only politics. Boy, you should put that one on a bumper sticker. People who talk about, well, the free market's good, but it has to have that regulation. Government's got to be providing some kind of oversight. Nonsense. It's not a free market, if that's the case. When the government gets involved, it gets politicized. And I'm sorry, but that is true in all the areas where, where we operate. I must get this license. I must apply for this permission. Yeah, it's, it's ostensibly there to protect you. But built into that protection, in quotation marks, is an assumption that you're too stupid to figure that out for yourself. If you had a brain, you'd be outside playing with it, right? Well, central planning just doesn't work to the advantage of the people. There isn't enough flexibility and innovation that way. The free market definitely has that flexibility. But unfortunately, we get used to the uh, 
not-so-free market, and we become reliant on too few options. Kent McManigal says central planning works well in the short term for the politicians and their cronies. That's why they won't willingly let go. And this means the people have to take it away from them if anything is going to change in a meaningful way. What should have been a learning experience from the, the big freeze and the power outages, especially across the South, will probably result in no change. He says the wrong people are being blamed and the wrong people are being asked to save us from next time. Nobody's looking in the right place for solutions. So he says, if nothing else, follow the Federal Emergency Management Agency's advice for the emergency supplies they recommend. It's a start. And he has a link there in the article to, you know, what the what FEMA recommends you have on supply or have on hand as emergency supplies. Here's the funny thing. I've encountered a number of people over the years who have real heartburn over the idea of personal preparedness. And in a way, I kind of get it because we've all known people. Crap, now that I think about it, I'm, I may be that guy who goes way too far in preparedness, right? It's everything they do. I mean, it, I'm not to the point where I'm showing up in camo everywhere and, you know, going traveling in short three, uh, two to three second dashes, you know, to cover, to cover, low crawling when I have to. No, I'm not talking about uh, quite that level of uh, commitment to emergency preparedness. But I definitely believe it is the right thing to do and... It's, it's going to bring you peace of mind rather than paranoia. So if you remember nothing else from this, that's, that's my message to you. Digging into personal preparedness, having some extra food stores, having alternative means of cooking, alternative means of heating your home, a plan for if, uh, for some reason, your home was uninhabitable. What would you do? Where would you go? How would your family members know that you're Okay. I know people don't like to think about these things because it's like, oh, well, if I think about it, you know, maybe that invites it. I'm, I'm telling you, it's exactly the opposite. When you think about these things, when you have the preparations in place for the unexpected, in the words of my friend Jim Phillips, what could have been an ordeal simply becomes an adventure. And I can't emphasize strongly enough the difference between those two approaches to life. An ordeal is something that you suffer through, and oh, it was horrible, and you know they're going to be talking about this for generations in our family. Whereas an adventure is, yeah, I remember when the big blackout came and how we had to, you know, we had to really, you know, put put our heads together and come up with a way to keep the house warm and to, to take care of uh, keeping our pipes from freezing and whatnot. But ultimately, it does bring peace of mind. Do you want to sleep soundly at night, even though the wind is howling outside? The key is to have those personal preparations. And it's not just the physical preps. As my friend Suzanne Sherman would, would tell you, mentally, you've got to have some resilience. You've got to, got to build up those mental calluses and emotional calluses to where when something goes wrong, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> it's not fun. And it, it may feel like, hey, the universe singled me out for some kind of special treatment here. But you realize I'm resourceful. I don't have to wait for somebody to come riding to my rescue because, first of all, they won't. But secondly, because I can handle it. That's the mindset I'm trying to cultivate in every person to whom I speak about the virtues of personal preparedness. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to uh, my friends at uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. You wear a lot of hats as a business owner. One of them is you have to be a commercial insurance specialist. What's that you say? I feel unqualified for that. Well, you're not alone. (laughs) A lot of people feel that way. And this is where Landmark Risk Management and Insurance can help. We're talking trained, very capable professionals who are there to make sure that you have what you need and you don't carry what you don't need to carry. You can contact them by going to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There's a link at the bottom of today's show notes. These are the notes for March 5th, and you'll find a link there that will connect you directly to Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Be sure to tell them thanks for helping to sponsor this show. So I want to confess something. This isn't going to surprise anyone who knows me well, but uh, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Oh, no, I, I know. I, I play a, some, a somewhat erudite uh, individual on, on the radio and on this podcast. But uh, no, truth be told, there are some areas where I've always uh, done quite well. Um, reading, writing, that kind of thing has, has always come more naturally to me. But I'll, I'll confess it, math has been hard. And I think it was about seventh grade where I really kind of fell behind on my understanding of math. And it has been a struggle since then. It's crazy. Yeah, fi- almost 50 years of just struggling with math. So, you know, when when I was looking for ways to get out of math, I mean, I, I tried everything I could to avoid taking math classes in college, and it, it's hard. So I married a math teacher. I married someone who's very smart and very, uh, very much loves a good math problem. And I'm not kidding. My wife, when she sees a big math problem, you know, laid out, her eyes light up. Ooh, a challenge. And she gets to work on it and solves it. But man, I'll tell you, I could have used something like uh, the the current trend that uh, some woke educators are pushing right now. I just saw this article from Kerry McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education. Here's the headline. Woke educators release letter declaring objective math a form of white supremacy. See, if I could have thrown that back at my parents in seventh grade, well, the reason I got an F in math is because I recognize that what they're really trying to teach me is white supremacy. And I'm not going to stand for that now or ever. See, I would have had the moral high ground. I probably wouldn't have had to try to uh, convince my parents that uh, that F was, uh, was really a good thing because it showed, you know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> not giving in to, uh, to this alarming uh, white supremacist ideology that they're forcing on us by making us learn objective math. Here's how Carrie explains it. She says, mandatory teaching standards that focus on critical theory and identity politics to the detriment of liberalism and individualism are already working their way through state legislators, legislatures. rather. Now, math education itself has been deemed racist. A group of educators just released a document calling for a transformation of math education that focuses on, quote, dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by... Vi- by Let's try this word. Visibilizing the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math. Holy word salad, Batman. Dismantling white supremacy in math classrooms by visibilizing the toxic characteristics of white supremacy culture with respect to math. Okay, just as an aside, that was one of the cool things about math, even though I struggled with it. The nice thing about it was, There was no nuance in terms of, look, if you carry out the uh, operation here correctly, you should arrive at a correct answer. It's either correct or it isn't. 
This is why teachers would often say, show your work. Show how you got where you got. It's one of the few things you could count on that wasn't, you know, just made up of uh, mist. Kerry McDonald says, among the educators' recommendations, which officials in some states are promoting, are calls to, quote, identify and challenge the ways that math is used to uphold capitalist, imperialist, and racist views. That sounds almost communist or Marxist in the way it's, it's phrased there. Also, to provide learning opportunities that use math as resistance and it, to encourage them to disrupt the disproportionate push-out of people of color in STEM fields. That's pretty lofty. She says, beyond activism, these recommendations also argue that traditional approaches to math education promote racism and white supremacy, such as requiring students to show their work, uh uh-huh, see, or prioritizing correct answers to math problems. The document claims the current math teaching is problematic because it focuses on reinforcing objectivity and the idea that there's only one right way, while it also reinforces paternalism. Now, thankfully, some prominent professors are pushing back. She says, this week, some prominent university professors spoke out against these new woke math education recommendations. Princeton mathematics professor Sergio Kleinerman wrote a guest post on the topic at journalist Barry Weiss's website. He says, attempts to deconstruct mathematics, deny its objectivity, accuse it of racial bias, and infuse it with political ideology have become more and more common, perhaps even at your child's elementary school. Kleinerman, who grew up in communist Romania, warns that this current classroom dogma is dangerous. He writes, when it comes to education, I believe the woke ideology is even more harmful than old-fashioned communism. Remember, this is a guy who grew up under communism who's saying this. Columbia University English professor John McWhorter also chimed in against this math education document and its recommendations. This lovely pamphlet is teaching us that it is racist to expect black kids to master the precision of math, he writes in a blog post. To wit, its message penned by people who consider themselves some of the most morally advanced souls in the history of the human species is one that Strom Thurmond would happily have taken a swig of whiskey to. McWhorter later adds, folks, this is the critical race theory that so many of us are resisting. Not a simple program for social justice. To distrust this document is not to be against social justice, but against racism. So while the growing emphasis on critical theory in American classrooms has broader societal implications, including the devaluation of objectivity and individualism, the real victims of this educational approach are the students themselves. In one of his last articles before he died last December, Walter Williams decried the poor academic performance of students in large urban school districts. Writing of Detroit, Williams said, In two city high schools, only one student tested proficient in math and none are proficient in English. Yet the school spent a full week learning about systemic racism and Black Lives Matter activism. Carrie McDonald says, as this woke worldview continues to penetrate classrooms with its mandatory minimum or mandatory curriculum standards, families who don't agree with this ideology or who simply want their children to learn basic academics should have the opportunity to pursue alternatives to their assigned district school. Currently, 26 states have active school choice legislation that would enable funding to follow students, including adopting education savings accounts or tax credit scholarship programs. Meanwhile, she says overall support for school choice policies has grown since last spring. The COVID-19 school shutdowns have put parents back in charge of their child's learning in ways that were unimaginable pre-pandemic. 
with many parents leaving their school districts in droves. Indeed, the Associated Press reported a sharp decline in public school enrollment this academic year across the 33 states for which data were available. Millions of families have pursued private education options such as independent schooling and homeschooling that can offer more consistent, higher-quality in-person instruction than a district's Zoom schooling or hybrid offerings. As the New York Times reported earlier this week, fewer than half of K-12 students are currently attending full-time in-person schooling, and families are increasingly seeking other options. The article says, Now many parents are beginning to rebel, frustrated with the pace of reopening and determined to take matters into their own hands. The New York Times says some are making contingency plans to relocate, homeschool, or retreat to private education if their children's routines continue to be disrupted this fall. A real possibility is some local school officials and two teachers' unions argue for aggressive virus mitigation measures to continue, potentially even after educators are vaccinated. And Kerry concludes by noting the amplification of woke ideology in classrooms is likely to accelerate the current exodus from district schools. Parents have experienced a renewed sense of responsibility over their, their children's education. Now they, in many cases, have had a front row seat to what their children are actually learning through Zoom school. And hopefully will feel more empowered to push back against the new critical theory cur- curriculum standards and choose an education that values individualism over collectivism. I hope she's right. I think she is, but I, I really hope that parents will seize this. And I've asked people this before, and it's, it's not so much, you know, I'm just trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but have you ever seriously considered, what is the line in the sand? What's the line that I would not allow people to teach my children any longer? I would actually vote with my feet and remove my kids from the school system rather than subject them to what uh, those running that system want them to, to learn. I mean, come on, woke ideology is coming at us from every other area of our lives. I guess it's natural to understand it was going to find its way into the schools. After all, you've got a captive audience. They're there by compulsion in many cases, right? Compulsory attendance laws. We don't have to roll over and take it. That's the message I get. This is The Brian Hyde Show.